My name is Ransom. I'm the pastor here, and I'm very thankful that you all have joined us this morning. Uh, We're finishing up our Advent series today, so for the last time this season, you'll hear me say, awesome Advent to you. Uh, The scripture we'll be studying this morning is printed in your bulletin. I think for those of you at home, it should be on the screen as I read it, but if you'd like to follow along in your scriptures, I'll be reading that passage now. It's Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Again, it's Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Beginning in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Advent. Thank you for Christmas. It has been an uh, odd season of our lives. And Lord, even in many cases, even now, we're dealing with the culmination of different opinions as we try to gather with family. Lord, this morning, may we put those things out of our minds. May we focus on what John the Baptist focused on, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that our worship of you this week as we celebrate Christmas would be enhanced by the speaking and the preaching and the teaching of your word this morning. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Matthew 3, 1-12 through is a loaded passage. There's so much in here, we're not going to get to it all. Uh, a lot of what, is, what John the Baptist says and what Matthew recounts it's really a foreshadowing of what, we'll, what you see in the entire book of Matthew. Now, the good news is we'll be in Matthew from now until Easter, and so we'll get to those things, but this morning we're going to be focusing on just a few things. And so here, uh, a good kind of synopsis of what's happening here, Matthew 3, 1 through 12 is really the last Old Testament proclamation, the last one before this new thing begins, before this new message, that the full message is revealed. And so... Um, We see here also that Matthew is a good storyteller. He grabs this character, John the Baptist. He's an attention grabber. And and he uses John the Baptist to to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Let's talk about John the Baptist. Who is this guy? Look at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, he was 
a wilderness preacher. He did not go to urban centers. He was in the middle of nowhere. And so, uh, it, unless you're studying this passage, you may not know this, there's actually two towns named Bethany. Uh, one is where uh, Lazarus and his sisters lived. It's just on the other side of the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem. This Bethany, where he is preaching, is far, far up north from there. It's near Nazareth. And it's on the other side of the Jordan River. So it's really in the middle of nowhere. That's where he's preaching. And so he's this wilderness preacher proclaiming this message from God in the middle of nowhere. All right? He also has an interesting dress code and diet. Look at verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I almost wore that this morning. I almost wore the camel hair, got it out, but it wasn't iron, so I, I couldn't, uh, couldn't wear it. Sorry about that. Um, so listen, we think this is strange. We're like, my goodness, this guy's an oddball, but here's what, what's going on. He's dressed like a nomad. He's dressed like someone who lives in the wilderness. He's dressed like someone would have been dressed if they lived out in the wilderness. He also is eating the diet of a person who's in poverty, which is, if you notice, strictly paleo. Um, so we think, man, what an eccentric character, and he certainly was, but we tend to look at the outside of a person. These are two things, and so as you approach John the Baptist in this day and age, you're thinking, my goodness, this man is homeless, and obviously he's of no means. That's who John the Baptist is. Look at verses 5 through 6 and verse 8. He says, when, And then Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And he said, he's speaking to the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What is his message? It's a message of repentance. And in response to repentance, he's asking people to be baptized. And so, hence, we get John the Baptist. Now, he is not of the denomination of Baptists, okay? What that means is he encouraged this particular kind of baptism. And as we learn uh, from other places in Scripture, this is not the same baptism that we celebrate now. Here's from Easton's Bible Dictionary. John's baptism was bound its subjects to repentance and not to faith in Christ. It was not administered in the name of the Trinity, and those whom John the Baptist were, uh, were baptized by John were rebaptized by Paul. And this author is speaking about Acts 19. So Paul is, is on his missionary journeys, and he meets these people who are saying, we've been baptized. We, and he says, well, what about the Holy Spirit? And they said, what's the Holy Spirit? And so he explains, he says, uh, then what have you been baptized into? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this baptism that John the Baptist is asking people to participate in is not the same thing that we partake in now. It was really that Old Testament baptism. He's saying, return to the law of God. And so he's saying, in a sense, when you get baptized, you're washing yourself clean, much like ceremonial washing. Get rid of those sins. Get rid of your rebellion. And so he was focused on a baptism of repentance. And the most fun thing about John the Baptist, besides his dress and diet, is he was an abrasive confronter. He was abrasive. Look at verse 7. So if you've been listening to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, you're familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who were they? These pompous, pious people. That's alliteration, didn't even mean to have it. 
And they, would, they showed up to partake in the latest religious fad. And what does John the Baptist say to them? He says many things, but a good summary statement is this in verse 7. You brood of vipers, literally you offspring of poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so in this we see John fulfilling his role as the last great Old Testament prophet. Turn from your ways, Israel. Turn from your ways, you leaders of Israel. And this last message is one of conviction. Before the ministry of Jesus begins, he's saying, return to God's law. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. As I was studying this passage this week, reading about unquenchable fire and wrath and all those lovely Christmas topics, um, I realized that Christmas and John the Baptist actually have a lot in common. Christmas and John the Baptist have a lot in common. They both act as announcers. They announce something. And so what is the primary message of John the Baptist? It's actually in the, in the background of his words. It's, it's less about repentance. It's more about, listen, there's someone coming next and you need to pay attention, and that person is Jesus. You must pay attention to the next thing. It is Jesus. And, and so one way of seeing this, John, uh, one of the disciples in his Gospel, says it this way. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said to his own disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, of, is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And so as Advent comes to a close and we begin our celebration of Christmas this week, that's our focus. Same focus as John the Baptist. Who is Jesus? Now, it's all about Jesus. So this morning... I have three truths about Jesus that we can pull from this passage, and we're going to go through those one by one. The first thing we can learn from this passage about Jesus is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 3. The narrator takes a break here. He's explaining what John the Baptist has just said, and as we've seen over the last several sermons, Matthew loves to take Old Testament Scripture and show you where it's fulfilled. And so when John the Baptist says in, in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew takes a break from the story and he narrates this, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. This word Lord is the same word in the Greek Old Testament used as the name of God. The name of God. And so what is John the Baptist saying? He's saying that Jesus is divine. Jesus has power and authority. Jesus is the Lord, not a Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. There's a couple different aspects of Christ's Lordship that we can see in this passage. First, Jesus is a kingdom bringer. Verse 2. Again, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand means it's very near. It's coming. We remember from last week, what did the wise men say to King Herod about Jesus? Where is the one who was born the king? It wasn't bestowed upon him. He wasn't anointed king. He was born already king. Why? Because he was, this is the first advent. It's the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is the one who is bringing it. 
it, it highlights for us the singular purpose that Jesus had on this earth. What was his singular purpose? His singular purpose was to issue in, to usher in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So think about this. As he lay in the manger, he was fulfilling his purpose of bringing the kingdom. As he, as he abandoned his parents at the festival and went to the temple, what was he doing? He was about the work of his father, bringing the kingdom. As he left his life as a carpenter, why did he do that? To bring the kingdom. As he hung on the cross and died, what was he doing? Establishing his kingdom. As he rose from the grave and established the church, what was he doing? Establishing the kingdom. It's the singular purpose of Jesus Christ. He's a kingdom bringer. Jesus is Lord, and in his lordship, he brings the kingdom. He is also worthy of worship. Look with me at verse 11. It's the middle phrase in verse 11. John's talking about himself. He says, listen, I baptize you with water for repentance. And then he has this kind of phrase that he interjects. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. This word mightier means wielding actual authority. So what's John the Baptist saying? You may think I have authority. I don't. I don't. I speak on, on the behalf of the one who actually has authority. And he's coming after me. And so like the wise men, what did John the Baptist understand about Jesus? That he was God. He was worthy of worship. The sandals were the dirtiest part of a person's uh, outfit back then. And so what he's saying is the dirtiest part of what, what this man's going to wear, I'm not even worthy of touching those. He wasn't adequate to hold his filthy sandals. He held Jesus in reverence because he was the Lord. Jesus today is still a kingdom bringer, and he's still worthy of worship. Those things are true today. How does Jesus Christ bring the kingdom now? How does he do it? He uses his church. We are the incarnation of Christ. We're the body of Christ here on earth, and Jesus leads us. The Spirit empowers us to do what? That singular purpose, bring the kingdom of heaven. That's why we're here. And he's worthy of worship. I was talking to a friend this week. He was lamenting about looking for a new church, and he said, Ransom, it's, it's hard because so many churches are just social clubs, right? You're here to hang out and have fun and, and talk about nice things and feel good. Listen, the church is not a place or an event. That's not what the church is. The church is a gathering of God's people who dedicate their lives, their whole lives, to worshiping God and to be on purpose for Him. And so, even today, Jesus is still the Lord. He is kingdom bringer. He is worship worthy. That's the first aspect that we looked at. Here's, that's something we can know about Jesus from this passage. The second one isn't nearly as pleasant, so let's jump right in, okay? Jesus is judge. Yes. Good Christmas topic. Verse 12. The winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Yikes. Okay. This is not the only time that this kind of imagery of Jesus as the judge comes out in Matthew. We'll look at it several times. One famous one is Matthew 25. 
And what does Jesus talk about there? He says, I will sit on the throne and I will separate the sheep from the goats. And so from beginning to end, Jesus recognizes that he has this duty. There's something true about him. And it is, yes, he is Lord. He is also the judge. A couple aspects of being a judge. First and foremost, Jesus is a wrath bringer. Make sure that's not a typo. Yep, okay. Listen, don't blame me. Blame John the Baptist. Blame Matthew. Jesus is a wrath bringer. Look at verse 7. The end of verse 7, he's just begun, John the Baptist has just begun uh, confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what is the question that he asked them? Who warned you to flee from what? The wrath to come. I know this isn't very Christmassy, but listen, for a moment, back up with me. Look at the big picture. What have we talked about the last several weeks? What does the story of Christmas include? What is the story of Christmas? It's not just celebration. We have a part in the Christmas story, and that part of the Christmas story is condemnation. Without the condemnation, without that bad news, without the deserving of our sins, deserving wrath, there can be no good news. And so Christmas, in its own way, declares our part in the story. Without the bad stuff, you hear me? Without the bad stuff, there can really, truly be no good stuff. Let's talk about wrath for a minute. Our family enjoys a ridiculous YouTube show called Dude Perfect. And um, I don't know if any of you watch it. It's good, clean, fun. But on that show, there's this character called the Rage Monster. And what happens is he gets upset about normal things, and then he flies into a rage and he destroys everything in the room. It's hilarious. Uh, when we hear the word wrath, we tend to think about that, going off. Having just like this uncontrollable spasm of, of emotion. I want to clear that up this morning. Jesus isn't the rage monster. God isn't the, he's not just going off. What is the definition of wrath? Listen to this. This is very technical. Punitive, the punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation at sin. The punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation at sin. We have to understand that wrath isn't just this overflow of emotion that's undeserved. No, wrath is a very thoughtful, calculated, deserved response to every single thing we do, I do, against God. Wrath is deserved by everybody. That's, the, that's one of the common human truths. Everybody that lives and breathes sins against God and everybody that sins against God deserves what? His punitive outworking. And so in this passage, we'll see Jesus eventually deliver a verdict and we'll talk about those in just a moment. There's more than just one. So we have Jesus as, Jesus as judge. He first aspect of his judgment is he's wrath bringer. The second one, I love this, I dressed the part today, he's a focused lumberjack, okay? Verse 10, even now, says John the Baptist, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This should ring familiar from the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of this kind of imagery and language was used. What's happening here? Jesus as John the Baptist is declaring, will dismantle the old religious system. 
Let's think about the Pharisees and Sadducees. What had they done? We learned about this again in our last sermon series. What had the Pharisees done? They had set up this system of measurable piety. Remember this? They had said, if we just act this level of goodness outwardly, then God will owe us. God will owe us salvation. God will owe us blessing. We will earn what, what God says He has coming to us. It's legalism. And so as we saw Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount, John the Baptist is saying here, He's about to dismantle everything that you believe in. He's about to dismantle everything that you've got wrong about God's law. And so, He uses the imagery of the focused lumberjack. Jesus fills the role of a lumberjack. He also is this kind of serious, slightly scary farmer. Okay, look at verse 12. You can just read this in this kind of dark movie trailer voice and you get chills. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Woof. Okay? Merry Christmas. On that note, listen, he's... He's a farmer doing his job. A, a winnowing fork looks a lot like a pitchfork, and what they would do is they would cut down all the wheat, and then they would throw it in the air on the fleshing, threshing floor, and the good stuff would fall down, the bad stuff would float away, and eventually they'd burn up all the bad stuff. He's doing a farmer's job, but he's separating the good, useful bits of wheat from the totally uh, useless chaff, the other bits. And so Jesus here is being represented as the one who will sit over all people. He will decide who is innocent, who is guilty. He will decide who, what trees live and what fruitfulness is like and supposed to be. He will decide what is wheat and what is chaff. He will decide who gets fire and who does not. Jesus is the judge. It's the truth. This is not great Christmas dinner conversation, but it doesn't make it less true. And it's still true today. You see, our world has this mixed up idea of what judgment is. Our world's idea of judgment is, listen, no one has a right to tell anyone how to live their life unless, uh, unless you disagree with that statement, okay? You have no right to tell anybody how to live unless you disagree with that statement. Then we're going to ostracize you. It's called cancel culture. And what they do, what the world does, is they set themselves up as God. And they say, I'm untouchable, but I can see your sins, and I will punish you for your sins. It's unstable. It's inconsistent. It's terrifying. Listen, the only truth in this world, there's only one truth, and it's Scripture breathed out by God, and there's only one judge who stands over that. And it's Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's the truth. It's not judgment by committee. It's judgment by Jesus Christ. This Christmas, I've been rereading Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. I really enjoy that story. And um, what I like about it is, you know, we watch the movies, Muppets Christmas Carol, whichever one you prefer, right? But we tend to make it kind of a cutesy story, but... By 1840 standards, it's a seriously scary ghost story. It's, it's, it's really a, a, a kind of a horror show, right? It's a horror book. 
And, and so in these gruesome stories, what I like about the Christmas carol is he uses this really scary language and scary ideas and imagery to, to really deliver a really positive idea. It's a positive idea. In the same way, we look at this passage, and, and you're probably feeling what I feel right now is, I hope they're still paying attention because this is a lot to take in. There's a lot of negativity here, my goodness. But there's a nugget here. There's a gospel nugget. We have to look carefully for it. So the third thing we can learn about Jesus from this passage is that Jesus is a loving Savior. Yes, He is the Lord. He is Master of all. Yes, He is the Judge. But Jesus is a loving Savior. Three places we can see the seed of truth. Look at verse 9. Again, John the Baptist berating the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we, we have Abraham as our father. Again, this is measurable piety. They're saying, Look at our lineage. God owes us. He says, No, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's a great ringtone. It's very peppy. All right. Um, I wouldn't expect anything else from Sandy Boney's <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, so, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. What does this mean about Jesus? What does this mean about God? He's a people gatherer or a people raiser. Here's... The beautiful truth, God alone gathers His people. God alone gathers His people. We don't need to meet Him halfway. We don't have to be a certain type of person or indulge in certain behaviors or do this, that, and the other. God alone raises His people. God is the Savior. Jesus Christ is His implement. He calls and He saves. And so the good news this morning is if you're a rock or better, you're eligible. God raises His people. The second piece of good news here, look at verse 11. Jesus is the Holy Spirit giver. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This really is two choices. We're back to these two verdicts. John the Baptist is saying, you're going to get one of two things from Jesus Christ. You're either going to receive the Holy Spirit or you're going to receive fire. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. He doesn't just deal out fire. He also deals out, it's an incredible truth, he deals out the third party of the Godhead to individuals. It's a great truth. In, this, in that little phrase, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, there's a subtlety. There's a subtle gospel message because the question is, if you think about it, how is it possible if everybody deserves the fire, if everybody deserves the wrath, by what system of thinking could Jesus rightfully give the Holy Spirit? How could He reward that? How could He give that? And in that small phrase, we see that Jesus, He's not just a people gatherer. He's not just a Holy Spirit giver. Jesus Himself is the wrath facer. Wrath facer. He faces the wrath. Let me explain this. We, 
over the last several uh, months, I think a couple times, I've used uh, a scripture as a support in my, my messages that involve this word propitiation. It's not a word you hear at the supermarket every day. The word propitiation. And what this word really means is that, that Jesus stood in our place and faced God's wrath for us. It's a big, unusual word that means something so sweet and so important. Propitiation. And so what we have to understand is that the only way for the Holy Spirit to be a possibility for us, for that to be one of the verdicts, the only way that we could be counted as wheat and not chaff, the only way that we as trees could be spared from the axe is if Jesus faces His wrath for us. It would be unjust. If, if we heard of a court, uh, ending of a court case where the judge found the person guilty and said, you know what, forget about it. Don't worry about it. We would be like, what's going on? What's going on with the, what's going with the justice system? And so in the same way, God does not look at us as guilty humans and say, you know what, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Instead, something had to be done. And what was that thing? Jesus Christ came to earth. That was the thing. And so as we look at this passage, as we look at the story of John the Baptist, as we look at the truths that are here, this passage serves similar functions as Christmas. Let me explain. You see, Christmas, if we think about it from the perspective of Scripture and what it was intended to be, Christmas highlights our reality, our true character in a sense. It highlights our problem. And I'm not talking about the things, the lengths you're willing to go to get the last piece of fudge from somebody else in your house. My sister now knows to send us two bags of fudge. One gets labeled Ransom and one gets labeled Julie because we don't share the fudge that well. Listen, this is not what I'm talking about. That's a whole other sermon altogether. Christmas, I already mentioned it, is a call to repentance. We miss that. We're, we're so wrapped up in celebration, we forget we're celebrating something that we caused. And so Christmas, in its gentle and beautiful way, is a kind voice that says, remember what your salvation costs. Remember. John the Baptist is, is doing that in an abrasive way. Christmas does that in a gentle way. A baby in a manger, what does that really mean? It means Christ, who had all the riches of heaven, became poor, that we might become rich. A baby destined to a, for a gruesome death. Last week, we, we kind of had this, this sigh of relief. Oh, good, Jesus escaped the wrath of Herod. But guess what? He didn't escape the wrath of God. He didn't escape Rome. And so sure, as a two-year-old, they fled to Egypt. But really, it's because it wasn't his time yet. And so Christian, the question then is, have we forgotten what Christmas is about? Have we forgotten? Christian, I'm not talking to people outside the church. I'm talking to us in the church. We deserve fire. We deserve it. And yet, what do we get? The Holy Spirit. It should blow our minds. It should blow our minds. I don't deserve the Holy Spirit. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yet, those are the things that He gives me. We were once no better than chaff, and yet he treats us as if 
We are weak. In fact, he makes us weak. He makes us useful. We were once strangers and enemies, church. And what are we now? Children of God. That should be part of our Christmas morning. Not just, hey, can we get into the gifts? No, it should be about, what, what have I done? And praise the Lord for what He has done in my place. For those of you that are not Christians, those of you who are outside the church, listen, you and me, we're the same. We're the same. Uh, we're sinners in need of a Savior. I'm not better than you. We're the same. We sin. We deserve this fire, this scary thing. It's super scary news. Scary news for everyone that Jesus is Lord and Judge. Why? Because as we stand before Him, we don't have any other verdict that we deserve other than, than guilty. But listen, on your own, you can't escape that reality. But the greatest news you could ever hear is that He faced that judgment for you and He offers it up to you simply by saying, I believe. I believe. I believe that I can't help myself. I believe that I'm a sinner guilty. I believe that if I, I went on my own, I would meet nothing but fire. And Jesus says, I have taken that, that from you. I've taken it for you. Believe in me. So the first function of this passage and the function of Christmas is to highlight our true character, our reality. The second thing that it does is it highlights the full and true character of Jesus Christ. My favorite Christmas hymn is O Holy Night. Listen to the first verse. O Holy I won't sing it. Sorry. Sorry to disappoint. Um, actually, Sandy, can you find that song on your phone? Just kidding. Okay. Um, o Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. This is the moment. This is the moment where I fall in love with O Holy Night every time I hear it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Do you hear how deep and true that is? A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Christmas is a hopeful warning to flee from the wrath to come. That's what it is. It's a hopeful warning. It's different than what John the Baptist says because John the Baptist says, listen, it hasn't happened yet. Look for it. What Christmas says is it's happened. Do you see it? You can escape it. How can we escape it? Only by the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. So Christian, my last Advent encouragement to you is may your Christmas worship, may my Christmas worship be solely focused on the great work that Christ has done for you. And so as you sit, whatever you're going to do, whatever you're eating, whatever you're, whatever you're going to, as you watch your kids open their gifts and there's joy on their face, remember the gift you've been given. The gift you don't deserve. And celebrate in your heart. Worship in your heart this Christmas. The thing that has been done for you through Jesus Christ. It's done. You can't undo it. And for those of you who would consider yourself non-Christians or maybe you walked away from the church or whatever your scenario might be, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, listen, it's never too late to hear what the Scriptures say about you and about Jesus. Those two things go side by side. What do the Scriptures say about us? We need a Savior. 
And what does Jesus offer? He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers adoption as a child of God. He offers eternal life with God, the Creator forever, with Jesus. And those things are offered freely. There's no better time than at Christmas to receive the greatest gift you could ever receive. And that is salvation through Jesus Christ. And so, I want to end this Advent sermon series with this statement. Listen, we deserve the fire. But Merry Christmas, Jesus faced the fire for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, hard passages like this can break our hearts, and I pray that it does that this morning. Break our hearts over the ministry that Jesus chose to follow. Why? Because we're sinners. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and the only answer was for you to intervene. The only answer was for Jesus Christ to come as a baby, to grow up, to face all the suffering we face, to face all the temptation that we face, to live a perfect life, to be rejected, to die between two thieves. He did that for us. He faced the wrath of God. He was our propitiation. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. Break our hearts in that. And, and then Lord, mend our hearts again. Let us see the love that you communicate through that story. Let us feel the healing that that provides us in our souls. Let us feel the freedom that provides us from sin in our lives. We don't have to participate in it. Let us feel the unity of the church. We're bonded together on one purpose. Build the kingdom. And so as our hearts are broken and remended, I pray that we this year above all years, more than any year before, worship You well at Christmas. We love You, Lord. We pray that You would bless us as we approach Your table. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.